Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Mystery Master, Intrigue, written by John Rayburn. Another Ricochet Wild Adventure Rick, Helga, and Lute are commissioned to find the truth about a claim made that Russia's sale of Alaska to the U.S. was not legally completed in 1867. Once again, their signature sleuthing methods enable them to quickly find the truth and resolve the matter once and for all. Of course, this leads to more offers. Uncover the thieves of rough diamonds from a Canadian mine and help neutralize the threat by radicals to plant bombs in the U.S. During one of their commissioned adventures, the intrepid trio stumble upon a long-hidden stash of gold in an ancient fortress. After hazardous chases around Alaska, Russia, the Mediterranean, Canada, and India in seaplanes, helicopters, and even a U.S. destroyer, the team heads home somewhat frazzled and intent upon seeking less harrowing and dangerous future adventures. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from the Mystery Master, Intrigue. Chapter 1 the phone message was interesting. The president wants to have a meeting with you. The president of what? I wanted to know. There was a pause. Well, I mean the president of the United States. Now it was my turn to pause. I had been on the verge of saying something flippant, but the answer on the phone put a stop to that. Instead, are you kidding me? No, Mr. O'Shea, I'm not. He wants to know when you can come to the White House, and he told me the sooner the better. If you're really serious, I can be there just about any time. How about day after tomorrow, Wednesday? What time? Would ten o'clock be all right? Yes. We'll make arrangements for you to stay here. It may take two or three days. You might like staying in the Lincoln bedroom. That did it. You're putting me on. Who is this? Sorry, I should have told you. I'm Robert Hastings, the President's Chief of Staff. And I'm not putting you on, Mr. O'Shea. This is a matter of major importance. We'll see you Wednesday. That was the end of the phone conversation, but it certainly wasn't the end of my thinking about it. What is the meaning of this? I sat back a little confused and somewhat stunned. But not for long. I went downstairs where Helga was busily engaged in fixing one of her great breakfasts. What was your phone call so early in the morning? You're not going to believe this. Let me buzz Lute and get him over here so I can fill both of you in at the same time. I meant, of course, Luther. Call me Lute. Martin. She is now Helga O'Shea, nay Lang the lovely lady of my life, and one of our trio with an unusual mutual occupation. I almost hesitate to call it an occupation, but I guess that fits as well as anything else. Basically, I, or more aptly, we, are seekers and finders. We look for things that have been lost, hidden, or stolen, sometimes on a freelance basis, but more often as a commissioned team. We have been lucky enough to have a pretty good record of success. Some of our escapades have been noted in newspaper stories, television, online, and word of mouth. I suppose it's coverage of that nature that prompted this morning's phone call. In short order, 
Lute entered the kitchen. We upgraded a former carriage house on my estate, and he lives there full time. What's up? he asked immediately. Might as well get some coffee and sit down. This is going to take some explaining. The problem being, I don't really have an explanation. Uh-oh, here we go again. Where are we going and uh, when do we leave? You're not going to believe this. I didn't at first, but the president wants to see me. Or us, as the case may be. The president of what? Helga wanted to know. That's the same question I asked. It's the president. The president of the United States. Come on now. You're pulling our leg. My reaction exactly. At first, that is. You mean you're serious? Yep. Helga poured some coffee and sat down with us. Okay, no more beating around the bush. We're all ears. There's not much I can tell you right now. The call was from Robert Hastings, the White House Chief of Staff. We've been invited, sounded more like a command, to be at the White House Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. He just mentioned me, but we're like the Three Musketeers. Helga nodded and said in Latin, showing her linguistic prowess, Unus pro omnibus, omnes pro uno. One for all, all for one. I assume that's what you mean. Sure is. Hastings offered to put me up in Lincoln's bedroom, but they'll have to expand their accommodation plans if you two expect to go with me. They both ha-ha'd. That was a try-and-stop-us sound if I ever heard one. I told Helga she was nominated to call and make new arrangements, and she accepted the assignment. She went to the library to place the call, wasn't gone long, and came back wearing a big smile. I was lucky and got through right away when they found out why I was calling. Got the press secretary, Carl Boyd. I explained the situation, and guess who I got to talk to next? None other than your caller earlier, Hastings, the chief of staff. He said they weren't expecting all three of us, but understood when I told him that's the way we work. I guess you'll probably want to start in that direction today. That's what I told him. He's arranging hotel accommodations, so I guess you'll have to miss out on Abe's bedroom. Great. Let's pack some bags. Hastings said it might take two or three days, so we might as well be prepared. If we get on our good old I-95, it goes all the way to Miami. Except for figuring out the maze around New York City, we should be in D.C. without too many problems. That'll give us all day tomorrow to see if we can snoop out any reasons for this meeting. There was no way for us to do any guessing. So, we relaxed for the drive and didn't fret about what we might be getting into this time. We were fully recovered from our last outings that had taken us into the Carpathian Mountains and various other sections of Romania in a search for murderers and trying to resolve high-level plots and subplots. We managed to entangle the webs of deceit and moved on to the Channel Islands and Iceland before returning home. Even then, our touring hadn't finished, because a stolen armored car loaded with money was part of extending our capers. At least we didn't encounter massive traffic problems in New York City and made our way through the area with comparative ease. However, the smoothness of our journey was soon interrupted when it began to rain. It wasn't bad at first, but 
it turned into a torrential downpour. The windshield fogged a bit as the wipers swished more rapidly, and it became unsafe to continue. We pulled off the interstate and found a nice motel. I drove under the port cochere to let Helga and loot out, got a close parking spot, and used an umbrella from under the seat to dash in. I got dampened but not drenched, so it was no big deal. Our good fortune had led us to accommodations that also featured a nice restaurant, so we dined and pondered. The latter was about all we could do since we still hadn't the slightest notion why we'd been summoned to such an unexpected high-level meeting. The best part was that, because of leaving early, we'd have all the next day to reach Washington. We got there as planned on Tuesday, wended our way through the convoluted streets of the nation's capital, and checked into the hotel that had been arranged. We were handed a message that said a limousine would pick us up at 9 o'clock the next morning and transport us to the White House. Our various operations of the past have led us to several high-level meetings, but obviously nothing like this was going to be. That thought was multiplied when the time came. When we were delivered to the front door the next day, we were immediately ushered into the famed Oval Office. What an assemblage we encountered there. Foremost, of course, was the President himself. He stood, shook hands with the three of us, and said, I'm Charles Montgomery, as if we didn't know. Thank you for coming. The others were introduced, and we met Vice President Lawrence Carlson, Secretary of State Harold Mason, Speaker of the House Norman Jacobs, Senate Majority Leader Thomas Ashton, Senate Minority Leader Philip Daniels, Chief of Staff Robert Hastings, our original contact, Secretary of Defense Marshall Gibbons, and Press Secretary Carl Boyd. We were thinking, what are we getting into? What on earth is this all about? That was verbalized by the President. I know this must be baffling to you, but we're going to try to bring it all into focus. We've decided the best way is to let Carl Boyd begin things in an effort to bring you up to date as much as possible. Carl? Thank you, Mr. President, and my apologies to the three of you. I'm sure you know much of what I'm going to tell you, but it's a means of establishing the background. He began what was basically a history lesson. It all began way back in 1743, when we were still just British colonies. It started with a major influx of Russians in an occupation of the Aleutian Islands. The Aleuts living there were indoctrinated as Russian citizens. That didn't mean a lot to them because... Many became virtual slaves when they were forced to provide labor for harvesting pelts of sea otters. The Russians went at it full bore, so much so it came close to wiping out the otter population in the North Pacific. Another six decades went by before Alexander Baranov finally established a trading post at Sitka. That served to solidify Russian occupation of the Alaskan territory. They weren't spread out too much over the vast land, but... It served their purpose. Okay, another 40 years went by and commercial whaling got started. Oil and baleen, that's whalebone, were provided for industry, and the whalers really went after it. The same thing happened as had with the sea otters. All this commercial exploitation cut into the bowhead whale population, and it had major impact on the native people. The whalers didn't stop with that. 
they also took aim at the walruses because they wanted their ivory and oil. Again, there was major depletion. Just as a side note, though, after the U.S. acquired Alaska, in the first 23 years, our hunters actually harvested more otters and seals than the Russians had done in the 125 years they'd been around. I'm sorry to drag this out, but it's important background information that hopefully will prove of value. I don't think we even shifted restlessly in our seats because we still didn't know why we were there. Everything and anything we heard was being mentally filed away. Next then, Boyd continued, we come to the time when Russia, still a Tsarist government, instigated contact with President James Buchanan about the possibility of selling the Alaskan territory to the U.S. That whole idea fell through when our civil war broke out, but when that was over, Secretary of State William Seward felt a previous Russian suggestion might be a pretty good idea. He liked the thought of territorial expansion. So, he rejuvenated the whole thing, but had a heck of a time convincing the Senate. It finally made enough headway that it came to a vote, and the deal was ratified by the margin of just one vote. The House later approved the funding by a vote of 113 to 48. The deal was for us to pay $7.2 million for the whole package, something like, um, two cents an acre, a powerful bargain. You have to remember, though, that nobody knew anything yet about the fact gold would be discovered around 30 years later, and the discovery of oil in the North Slope didn't happen until 1968. So, neither the Russians nor we had an inkling of the eventual value. As a matter of fact, after the treaty was signed, a newspaper in Kansas printed an article titled Value of Our New Acquisition, and it only made their second page. Horace Greeley wrote in the New York Tribune that Alaska contained nothing of value but fur-bearing animals, and these have been hunted until they are nearly extinct. Except for the Aleutian Islands and a narrow strip of land extending along the southern coast, the country would not be worth giving as a gift. So much for foresight. The lack of same led to the well-known tag of Seward's Folly being imposed on the purchase. Of course, that eventual gold discovery changed attitudes. Oddly enough, and sort of a shame for Seward, he died in 1872 before anyone knew about the gold. Mm, thanks for your patience, I'm coming down the stretch. At the time of the purchase, Russia had been in a recent war against the British. The U.S. was a neutral country, and the Russians thought they might be deposed of the territory, so figured they might as well sell it and get something out of it, even if it was a relatively minor price. I think that pretty well tells what we wanted to be sure you knew. And that brings us up to now. Mr. President, I think the rest better be up to you. Thanks, Carl, for the comprehensive story which still doesn't explain the presence of our guests. Rick, Helga, Loot, guess what? We shook our heads, still baffled. A Russian named Alexei Zirinkov has approached us with a preposterous suggestion. Briefly, he maintains the original sale in 1867 was not properly authenticated, and he's demanding that Alaska revert to Russia. He further claims there are official documents verifying the matter, but hasn't produced them. 
A leak of some sort from his far-from-official headquarters indicated there may indeed be such documents. They just haven't been found yet. Zirenkov admit it's unusual enough that ample turnover time will be allowed for us to pack up bag and baggage and leave the premises, so to speak. Both Vice President Carlson and Secretary of State Mason have been to Moscow to try and pin down whether any part of this outlandish claim may have possible authentication. They haven't exactly been given a cold shoulder, but there were at least hints from Russian President Vasily Manin that Zirenkov isn't officially attached to the Russian government. This leads us to believe the entire situation may be, in modern terms, an outlandish scam. But we can't depend on that being the case, and that's why we've called on you. We're fully aware of your past accomplishments, your professed seeking and finding method of operating, and we would like to enlist your services. Secretary of State Mason interjected. We realize it may sound somewhat silly on the surface, but suppose this guy is right. What if there is some kind of documentation that makes his seemingly bizarre statements take on an air of a genuine legal foul-up of some kind? Chief of Staff Hastings added, If this all seems beyond belief to you, that's also our attitude. But as of now, it makes no sense to completely ignore the whole matter. The President added, I understand why you would wonder why this isn't being handled by the FBI or CIA or local Alaskan authorities who might be more privy to possible hiding places for such material. We understand that and we haven't been derelict. All of the above have been brought into play with little or no results. Someone, I think it was Senate Majority Leader Thomas Ashton, brought your names into our conversations. I agree with Secretary Mason about it sounding silly, but we are stretched to the current limits of our imagination. You may or may not be of any help. No way of knowing at this point. But will you be willing to make Alaska one of your far-ranging destinations to try and see if there's a way of wiggling out of this quandary? Nonplussed, my answer began, I, uh... Before I could continue... The president stated, We would expect any aid to entail a mutual agreeable fee and all expenses if that's a consideration. I probably could have said, I, uh, several more times because I felt tongue-tied, but at least was able to finally stammer, I'm fairly certain we'll take up your proposal, but can you give us a few days to go home and discuss it? There were nods all around the chairs in front of the president's desk, affirming our request. The president got a glint in his eyes and a smile followed. Eventually, we might tack on a bonus of allowing you to sleep in Lincoln's bedroom the way Mr. Hastings jestingly suggested in his initial phone call to you. That sounds like quite an enticement. Like many, I count Mr. Lincoln as a hero of mine. I recall his line when General McClellan vacillated in using his troops because he thought the Confederacy outnumbered him. The President's comment was, If General McClellan isn't going to use his army, I'd like to borrow it for a time. I assure you, if we decide to take on your project, which I'm sure we will, there will be no hesitation, nothing but full speed ahead. 
Seems fair enough. When may we expect an answer? We'll talk about it all the way home and let you know by the end of the week. And that's where the talking ended. There were several glad-to-have-met-you handshakes, and the limousine took us back to the hotel. We checked out and headed home, still somewhat stunned by the significance of what might be only a scheme to extract money from the government. It didn't require much of our conversation to determine we wanted to accept the nebulous undertaking with the taproots of our discussion involving best ways of doing it, primarily the how. As usual, bouncing ideas off one another was productive. Whatever evolves, I told them, I would like very much to begin our seeking in Sitka. Under Baranov, it was designated the Russian capital of America, and it would be a logical place to have secreted any such documents that are being claimed to exist. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from the Mystery Master Intrigue. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.